Okay, good evening everyone. Welcome to our April 11th special Q&A session. Special just means I'm doing this for the special occasion of us all being quarantined. Special because our center is closed and so it's a means of providing support and help for people who are meditating around the world. The mindful community. That's a good name, no? The mindful community. So I've, um, tonight I've turned on slow mode, which means, as far as I know, everyone gets one message every 60 seconds. I'm reluctant to enforce uh, this kind of structure and you know, utilit authoritarian measures. Uh, how, but but I think the, it's warranted because of the nature of the internet. You know, if if an ordinary interaction, in an ordinary interaction, we wouldn't all be able to talk over each other like we do on the internet. And so I would be able to keep up one person asking a question at a time. If there were a way to do that, no? Allow one person to type something, and then once I'd answered what they'd typed, only then could someone else type something. But I think this is maybe warranted. It's not that, not, it's not that we've had a bad experience before, but I think this gives them a... a like the turning off of the video, it gives a bit of a better feel to it from my end as far as making it more about you than about me. And so it's not about you typing something that I might see or someone else might see and how will people react to that and being feeling self-conscious and so on. No, your words are are not the most important thing. What's important is your experience. Your experience right now. Your experience of the sound of my voice. Your experience of the computer screen in front of you and the seat that you're sitting in and the room around you. So when you do use words they have to count. They have to be because there was a necessity to create words. Not just because that's what we're doing here, we're chatting. No, we're not chatting. This isn't about words. It's about something deeper than that. And the words can be used as a tool to 
facilitate whatever that is, that mindful state, the mindfulness that we're really and truly striving for. That's the hope anyway. So please feel free to ask questions, but I'm going to be a little bit slowed down because we get one message every 60 seconds, which in the grand scheme of things isn't a very long time. Basic ultimate teaching. I don't know if I've ever conceived of anything that way, but something that is both basic and ultimate something that is ultimate in basic terms. I think the, the ultimate teaching is just the practical, because there are teachings about the goal and the path, and those teachings are theoretical in, in a sense, because they describe some potential realization in the future. So in some sense, it's more ultimate to talk about something that is less ultimate. The, 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 the nitty-gritty practice. So I suppose my basic ultimate uh, teaching would be how to, how to practice sati, how to practice satipatthana, to gain vipassana. So it would be very mundane about walking back and forth, watching your stomach when you sit. It would be about repeating words to yourself as a technique to remind yourself of how things actually are. Oh, I'm, I'm supposed to be putting these up, no? Okay, so here's the deal. We're going to have a screen. But I'm only going to put up questions if they're... Well, I'm going to be selective in my questions. Does my practice change in these difficult, this more difficult time? It's an odd question. I mean, I should be asking you that. Is your practice changing in this more difficult time? But I, I, I guess the meaning is, should I change my practice? Or I'm not quite sure if that's what you're asking. But in difficult times, your practice can take off can can take on sorry, can take on a 
more urgent. The more urgent nature. Your practice can accelerate because of difficult times. It, they have difficult times help you to see what's important. They remind you of the vulnerabilities that you still have. The uh, the potentiality of suffering that we're often ignorant towards or delusional towards. And we don't we don't normally spend our time preparing for disaster and then when disaster comes it can sometimes wake us up and help us to do things that are important on the other hand it can difficulty can potentially um, of course get in the way of our practice. And I think the, the advice I can give then in regards to your question is to be aware of how difficult times get in the way of your practice and try and address those. Those are going to be crucial objects of mindfulness. It'll be crucial that you're focus, focusing on um, any obstacles to your practice, worry, fear, uh, speculation, any kind of interaction with the world, in term, I mean, in terms of w watching the news obsessively and that sort of thing. There's lots of patterns of behavior that crop up during difficult times that are gonna we're gonna have to be very careful to catch and to work on, work with, because they're not. They're not evident and they're not really present in, in ordinary life. That's what I would advise is work on see how see how your your state of mind differs and be careful to be mindful of those things as well, the different the different patterns of behavior. One is not a question, but I think there's a question in there. Oops, I skipped one. I skipped a good one. I'll go back to that one. I think. Well, I've answered that one before. Anyway, we'll do this one first. Textual interpretations of meditation induce light experiences. I guess I'm not really going to answer where you can find textual inter interpretations of it, but I'll give you maybe my interpretation or my understanding of meditation-induced light experiences. Uh, these are the sort of thing that can take someone off guard. It's another example of the sorts of special experiences that we're not ready for. And they take us off guard. They take us off guard, catch us off guard, and 
so um, it, they're very easily missed as objects of mindfulness. We, instead of being mindful, we start to um, expand upon them and and conceive in regards to them. We we give rise to thoughts about them, start thinking about them, start wondering what are these lights and investigating them and then they change and so we investigate the changes and we wonder what they are maybe we play with them we're, we're excited by them and so we start to induce new kinds of lights and that sort of thing all of which is not mindfulness practice it's not helpful it's a waste of time at the at, at, at minimum and the potential it has the potential for getting us off track getting us lost and even causing potential problems in your practice if you're really caught up in them. So they're an important part of our practice. Now the, the advice to deal with, of course, is quite simple. When you see anything, you should say to yourself, seeing, seeing. And, and stay with it until it goes away, just saying, seeing, seeing. If after a long time it doesn't go away, you can ignore it, but Stay with it for some time. How can one be mindful while studying or doing mental activity? And the thing is that my meditation mindfulness is a mental activity. So if you're doing some different mental activity, you, you, you aren't being mindful. There's no way you can do two different mental activities at once. That being said, something like studying is not equivalent to mental activity, right? Because when we talk about studying, there's a lot of physical and um, even mental interruptions to the actual act of the mental act of intaking information and all of that you can be mindful of so for example suppose you were studying a book reading a book let's say and at the moment when you're reading the information you're you're taking in the information there's no mindfulness involved well there's no meditation involved there but then when you reach to turn the book, turn the page of the book, you can be mindful of the page turning. That's a very silly, simple example, but really practically you're going to be mindful of the interruptions like pain or discomfort in the body, maybe hunger or thirst, maybe distraction where you start thinking about something unrelated. But absolutely, you can be mindful of, you could even get into a routine where you turn the page mindfully. Where you uh, touch your, if it's on your, your telephone, let's say, your smartphone, you could get a routine of touching the screen. When you touch it, say touching and pushing when you scroll up. When you use your mouse, you can be mindful of all the movements, moving, pushing, 
when you press on the mouse button, you can say press, pressing, being aware of the movements of the hand on the mouse. You can, you can tell yourself, oh, this is what I'm going to be mindful of. So the, the important thing is to separate out there the actual mental activity and everything else that's going on, the, the, the overarching moment-to-moment uh, -moment states, which often you can be mindful of. So if you've just shown, if you just arrived and you missed the beginning, or I didn't really mention, I just like to say that the idea here is I've turned off the video so that we can focus more on our own practice. The idea being that you should be closing your eyes, you shouldn't even be looking at the screen, or certainly not doing anything else with your eyes. and just listening to the questions, the answers, and trying to be as mindful and, and present as you can. When it is time, when you have a question that you'd like to ask, you can open your eyes, type in the question mindfully. Hit send, and then just close your eyes again. If it's a question I'm willing to answer, I'll answer it in due time. But this shouldn't be an interactive. It's not like a YouTube. It's not. This isn't your ordinary YouTube stream. This isn't your ordinary live stream. It certainly isn't like Facebook live streams. The idea is to. I guess that's not fair in Facebook. There could be some very good, similar streams. But it isn't an ordinary interaction stream. Lower back pain when meditating causes sleepiness. How long should I continue practicing? I find like I'll fall asleep. So there's a few things in there. It's not just one question. Lower back pains cause sleepiness is it's a bit odd. Normally lower back pains would cause disliking. So you might want to pick that apart and see why one leads to the other. It may be that your mind is trying to block out the pain or something. If you don't like the pain, you should note that. If you have pain, you should note the pain. If you feel sleepy, you can note tired, tired. But how long should you continue practicing is really an open question. There's no specific answer I can give you. It depends very much on you and your situation. I would recommend doing walking meditation because a lot of people seem to be just doing sitting meditation. So do some walking and some sitting. And if you do fall asleep in sitting meditation, well, it's certainly not the end of the world. Sometimes it's a sign that you, your, your brain needed the rest. Your body needed the rest.
Each time I try to be mindful of my abdomen, I will unconsciously control my breath, which will make me feel very uncomfortable. To some extent, that's the point. The point is to see how you ordinarily try to control things. It's a very apt description of what, you, what one should be experiencing. Not should be, but most likely will be, unfortunately. And that's the unfortunate truth that mindfulness is meant to show us, that we can't even experience the stomach rising and falling without trying to control it. And absolutely, the, the benefit in that is incredible. And we don't realize this. We think we're discouraged by focusing, we're discouraged from continuing, from focusing on the abdomen for that reason. When absolutely, exactly that's why we're practicing. Because seeing that, seeing what you're seeing, the, the intense discomfort that comes from trying to control is what's going to change your life. It will change the fundamental nature of your interaction with reality that sounds very high and mighty but but absolutely it will the mean mean simply put it's going to weaken your intentional control your intention to control things in in the future you'll see as you go along your intentions to control your your controlling impulses will be weakened. Why? Because you've seen more clearly than ever before that it's uncomfortable. Very uncomfortable. So keep it up. That's where patience comes in. It's like banging your head against the wall until you realize how how, how painful it is to bang your head against the wall. That's not quite how it is, because your practice isn't banging your head against the wall, but you put yourself in a situation where you would re normally react, where, where you would engage in patterns of behavior that are unwholesome, that are, that are problematic, and then you watch that, and you learn about your patterns of behavior, right? That's basically what we're trying to do, is learn about our patterns of behavior. And that learning, that understanding that comes... That's enough to change your patterns of behavior. When doing walking meditation, where should my mind exactly go? It seems the mind can only be at one of the sense doors. Which sense, sense door should it be? When walking, it's a Good question, actually. When walking, your your mind should be at the, the physical sense door. Maybe people don't realize this, but walking meditation isn't anything to do with the eyes. You're not watching your feet. Your eyes should be, your head should be bent about 45 degrees down, and you should be looking at the floor in front of you. But your mind shouldn't be with your eyes. It should be on the movements, the physical sensations of the movements in the feet. If it goes to a di di another door, then you should stop walking. Note the new experience. And when the experience is gone, start walking again.
the underlying tendency to ignorance underlies neither painful nor pleasant sensations. Can you give an example of sen such sensations, and how can we apply equanimity to them? Neither painful nor non no, neither painful nor pleasant sensations are neutral sensations. It's quite likely that you're experiencing all the time and, and ignorance is stopping you from realizing that's what they are. I know it's not an insult, it's just the way things are. So through meditation practice you're able to You're able to see experiences as they are. There's painful ones, there's pleasant ones. There's neither painful nor pleasant ones. I mean, there's an example isn't really necessary because most of our sensations are neither pleasant nor painful. Moving your foot is usually not painful or pleasant. The rising and falling of the abdomen is usually neither pleasant nor painful. As for applying equanimity to them, I've never taught people to apply equanimity to anything. I don't think that's the right way of looking at things. You're asking, you're saying to apply a emotion or a feeling to them, and that's not how it should be understood. The idea is to apply mindfulness to them. Sati. Sati is what we apply to our experiences. Equanimity is something which comes as a result of sati. It's a result of, of vipassana or panya. Once ignorance is gone, then there is no liking or disliking. Then there's only equanimity. So try and apply mindfulness to them and to all experiences. tend to visualize everything I note. When feeling pain, mind would automatically create an image as if I am seeing the body part having pain. So this is a, a good example for what how, how a meditator, how the meditation practice goes for a meditator. Your experiences are your own, are going to be individual. And it's important to be able to differentiate your experience in meditation from the course of action or the path of mindfulness, the course of action that we're intending or, or working towards. So what I mean by that is is you don't don't engage in your patterns of behavior. Your tendency to visualize everything has to become an object of the proper 
interaction, which is mindfulness. And it's a new sort of way of interacting with things. So I mean, basically, when, when, when you visualize something, you should just say to yourself, seeing, seeing. But the point there is that it doesn't change your practice just because you tend to visualize everything. It just changes the object of your practice. And this is a this is common for meditators. They will have a, a specific interaction with the meditation practice. Their way of interacting with it will be individual. Everyone's going to practice differently. And the point is that none of that dif none of the differences usually are practice. They're not really the meditation practice. They're what you have to work on. Your tendency to visualize things or what you have to work around, I guess. It's not it's not exactly a problem that you visualize everything, but it would be a problem if you incorporated that into your practice, is what I'm trying to say. Your practice should not incorporate such idiosyncrasies. Your practice should take those idiosyncrasies as an object, and the practice stays the same. If you visualize something, you would say to yourself, seeing, seeing. You wouldn't you wouldn't engage in walking meditation with the visualization. You would stop walking. You would not seeing, seeing. If you feel pain, you would stop. If you see pain, you would stop saying pain, pain, and you would start saying seeing, seeing. If your mind creates the image, that's fine. Just note seeing, seeing. That would be your object. All right, a COVID question. So I can't provide too much advice for worldly matters, but... with the information you've given me. My mom is trying to sell her house, but distancing myself from others and hers led to inaction. All of that I'm not sure if I can comment on, but ton of stress. She and her, you and her have a ton of stress. Life feels unmanageable, hopeless. Any advice? Our interactions with other people have to be skillful. There has to be a certain sense of worldly obligation or else it's going to interfere with our spiritual journey. You know, if you're callous and um, unfeeling towards the people around you, you might rationalize that by saying it's worldly, it's unimportant. But you'll soon see that there's an underlying reality to it and it's going to influence and affect your actual practice. As you can see, it creates a ton of stress. So if something creates a ton of stress, it's probably not helpful for your practice. Except insofar as it shows you that you're susceptible to stress. 
So you need skillfulness in your interactions with other people. You need to be mindful and you need to be thoughtful. It's a good English word. Thoughtful means you have to actually take the time and use the mental effort to consider. And find ways to create harmony or maintain harmony. And that often means interaction. In order to maintain harmony, often you need at least some minimal interaction to keep people from attacking you due to your inaction. I say it like that because you don't want to get caught up in people's lives, of course. It's easy to get caught up in worldly things, and that's the, the line should be drawn somewhere there where you're engaging but not getting caught up in. And so if, you're, if your parents need help with something, well, that often that involves, it's going to involve you actually helping them with something, with things, if you can. I guess um, maybe a part of your question is that the inability to help your mother. Distancing myself from others and her. If you mean by, by because of the regulations and because of the physical need for us not to interact, then you're talking about the stress that comes from hopelessness. You know, the stress that comes from the incapacity help uh, powerlessness and that's of course a very deep and important part of the practice the ability to let go when you can't change the ability to bear with difficult situations that you can't affect So I've been dealing with that is very much a part of mindfulness. It's very manageable, and there is a very great amount of hope in just dealing with those feelings. And by 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 engaging with those feelings, it becomes clearer to you, clearer to your mind that the the fact the nature of these things being beyond my control renders any stress or upset I might give rise to futile you know there's no reason to get upset there's no benefit in getting upset and it's not telling you you can tell yourself that and still get upset but when you see it when you're present you 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 you'll you'll see the change You'll, you, the stress will go away because it's ridiculous. It's futile. Getting stressed over something that is out of your control doesn't make that thing any more controllable.
I understand there are no objects, just seeing, hearing, etc. But it seems that there is not even seeing, hearing, etc. But just knowing that is the what seeing, hearing, etc. are made of. What do you think? I mean, I don't engage in in reality like this. I don't. It's not the way I would look at the Dhamma in terms of trying to figure out what is there. I think I think generally a question that, or a, an idea that starts with I understand that there are or that there is. It's not not always wrong, but it's generally a bit dangerous, because that's not really the point of what there is. The point is what is now and here and what is being experienced. And in that sense, I mean, I, I don't really get how you could come to the idea that there is no seeing. There is an experience of seeing. You know, the, the, the constituents of that, which you might be referring to, are the light and the eye and the mind. And the contact between those things creates what we call seeing. So suppose technically you could say seeing is not what is there, but seeing is what is happening because it's the contact of things that are there. I don't know if that's even proper. It's better to just say there is seeing because that's what is experienced. The experience is an experience of seeing. And any kind of I un an understanding or asking me what I think or thinking about it, all of that is not what we're about. Not what Buddhism is about, in my understanding. Buddhism is about observing the seeing, making it so that seeing is only seeing. Hearing is only hearing. If one meditates and becomes mindful and it leads to see things as they are and the realization that life is full of suffering, pain and chaos, how does that insight lead to happiness? Well, going by what you say, if life is full of suffering, pain and chaos, and you can think about this for a second. Is it better to be to be aware of that, or is it better to be ignorant to that? It's an interesting question, I think. Because the, the argument might go that ignorance is bliss, right? If you aren't aware that life is suffering and stress, 
then uh, maybe you're better off. But that's misleading because then technically if, if, if ignorance were bliss and if you could be in blissful ignorance, then it would be wrong to say that life was full of suffering, pain and chaos. So which one is it? No. If you're if you're ignorant of those things, then is life not full of suffering, pain, and chaos? And so the 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 point isn't that life is full full of suffering, pain, and chaos. The point is that there exists suffering, there exists pain, there exists chaos. The point is that when those things arise for us, ignorant or otherwise, well, ignorant, and we're ignorant, based on our ignorance, we're unable to deal with them mindfully, with equanimity. You know? We're unable to experience them peacefully. That's the point. So ignorance is not bliss. Ignorance is what causes us to be upset when bad things happen. We maybe don't realize that, but that's the that's the result of ignorance. That's the result of um, I need a better word than stupidity, but it's kind of stupidity of uh, our lack of wisdom, foolishness. And, and that's not really, a, I'm not trying to be insulting or critical. It's just that's, that's our state. There's a state of incapacity. There's a state of ignorance and, and foolishness and stupidity that we all share. That's why we're reborn. That's why we're born. As a part of our birth, we have this. And so when bad things happen... And they may or may not. And that's the real, the real variable here. Is some people go through life with very little stress and suffering. Other people have disastrous things happen. And when the disastrous things happen, we're not ready for them. And so, practically speaking. Learning to be familiar and prepared, familiar with, prepared for, in, in touch with these realities is a very good thing. Even just in a worldly sense, no? Like how does how does insight lead to happiness? Well, you're you're prepared for things that we all have to experience. And you say, well, couldn't I just go through life without, couldn't I just protect myself from these things? What about these people who go through life without very many catastrophes happening? The other thing about mindfulness and the practice of insight, another way that it brings happiness, and this is on a deeper level, is that as you come to deal with these disastrous experiences, you know, for many people, Spirituality is something they take up when disaster strikes. When bad things happen, 
and ordinary ways of dealing with things don't cut it. We seek out extraordinary means of dealing with things, and meditation and spirituality are often a part of that. But as you practice mindfulness, as you deal with these things, or or not, as a person who doesn't have any difficulties in their life, maybe they are thinking beyond that and preparing for them is a very good reason. See someone When you see someone else suffering, you think, wow, that could happen to me and I wouldn't be ready for it either. They prepare for it. Or they get a sense that they have an unpreparedness in them. They, they notice themselves getting irritated or craving things and they realize that that's a potential for stress and suffering because of bad things happen to them, etc. As they do this, one thing you start to see is this state of blissful ignorance is not so blissful as you thought. You start to notice stresses and sufferings that you didn't realize. Small stresses and sufferings. So they're not they're not um, emergencies. It's not something that's going that's destroying your life. But it's unpleasant. You start to see unpleasantness, getting irritated about things, craving for things, and not getting what you want. You start to realize it's happening all the time. It doesn't take a catastrophe, a natural disaster. It doesn't take an accident. It doesn't take an emergency to create suffering. You start to see it's everywhere. It really is everywhere. Wake up in the morning, the alarm goes off. Oh, I don't want to get up. Or already you're suffering. You turn on the news, you see all the terrible things in the world, you stress about that, you get a headache, you get afraid, more suffering. You open the fridge, you see all the food, and you crave for it, or you don't see enough food, and you start to worry about the, not having enough to eat, not enough money to buy groceries, can... Now, let's not go there. We're talking about ordinary people who don't have the ordinary stresses and suffering of of life. People who are blessed with good experiences. Even even they will start to see. Open the fridge up. All this food I have. People who are starving. Well, not me. Uh, but you are starving. You open the when you open the refrigerator and you crave the food, you're already starving. There's a mental starvation going on. And that's stressful. And so you need to appease that hunger by getting food. You get the food and you really like it. You think, this is pleasure. My life is good. But then you start being mindful and you realize, oh, wait, that pleasure was very very fleeting. And now the pleasure is gone. I'm bored again, craving something new. And you realize that that craving didn't actually help you. It just becomes a habit. And it's become a habit. And every time you open the refrigerator door, you reinforce and you augment and you increase, enhance that craving. So simply put, in summary, insight leads to great happiness. I mean, the, the last, so the last thing to, to, last point to make is that it leads to happiness because this understanding 
changes our interactions. When you see how much stress is caused by your reactions to catastrophes, to emergencies, to all terrible things that happen, but also to ordinary everyday life. This refines your behavior, just seeing, just understanding. And it's an important point that you have to accept. It's the, the sort of the, the leap of in, leap of understanding that the connection that we don't make is based is, is the basis of your question. How does insight lead to happiness? It's a fundamental quality of our minds that understanding does lead to freedom. So so our obsessions with things, our addictions, our reactions to things, Understanding changes them. Understanding is enough to bring about the change in behavior, the change in reaction. And you'll see this. It's not immediately evident that that should be the case. I mean, why should that be the case? That is the way the mind works. Our understanding, because our perception, our way of looking at things, our perspective, dictates our actions, our behaviors. If your perspective is that something is going to bring you happiness, that doing something, doing this, doing that, controlling things is going to bring you happiness, you'll you'll engage in that way. Once you see clearly, you'll see controlling things doesn't bring me happiness. Freaking out certainly doesn't bring me happiness. That perspective, that new perspective of understanding is going to give rise to its own form of interactions, which are equanimous, which are peaceful, which are ordinary, natural. So, I can't, I, I can talk and talk forever. Ultimately, you have to see for yourself. My answers are not going to solve your problems. Only you can solve them through your practice. How can I keep calm during stressful situations? I mean, really, that's the ultimate question, right? It's the question we all have. It's a very, it, it, it requires not a simple answer. There's not an answer I can give you like, hey, take this pill. Or do this, and you'll be calm during stressful situations. It's more complicated than that. We are not calm during stressful situations. Why not? Mindfulness shows you. It shows you our perspectives and how our perspectives lead to lack of calm, lead to stress. So let's talk, let's say, I'll say a few things. First of all, there's no such thing as a stressful situation. How do you unpack these, this lack of calm? Well, you start to see that it's our, our interpretation of the situation based on our perspective that leads us to get stressed out. There's no such thing as a stressful situation. And it's that perspective of seeing them as such that is the problem. 
So when you start to see the situation just as it is, when seeing is just seeing, hearing is just hearing, and so on, you'll see that your stress dissipates. There's no, there's no stress created because there is no stressful situation. There's no perception of a stressful situation. Right? Without that perception, why would you get stressed? That's the first thing I'd say. The second thing that you'll notice about that is that it's not about keeping calm. So in the beginning of meditation, you'll find there's very little calm. Because calm isn't the practice. You don't practice keeping calm. Don't try to keep calm, ever. Okay, with a qualifier, you can practice. There are ways to keep calm. And they can be very beneficial in a limited sense. You can practice meditation that calms you right down. Calms you down by taking you away from this stressful situation. Maybe doing breath meditation, maybe focusing on an image, maybe focusing on a sound, an idea, God, Buddha. All of these things will make you very calm. And in a limited sense, they're useful. But if you really want to be calm during a stressful situation, you have to accept the state of your mind and engage with it until you, your natural state of mind is one that facilitates calm. Rather than trying to keep calm, you create the state of mind that leads to calm. And that state of mind is one that sees things just as experiences, not as stressful. Why can't we just sit and do nothing in our meditation? Let the mind do its work and we don't try to control any activity of the mind, just sitting and just observing. Should I follow this meditation? Well, if you're enlightened, yes, you should. If you're not enlightened, then the real problem is that your mind is not going to let you do nothing. And you taking the sort of meta perspective of doing nothing is just going to let your mind do everything react, judge, interpret the Buddha said it's like a tree leaning in one direction you leave it alone it's going to fall in that direction and there's no, no way there's no chance of that tree falling in the other direction unless you do something pretty extreme. So, if your mind is leaning in the wrong direction, you better darn well not do it, not do nothing. You better darn well do something. You better change your your mind. That's the point. You speak about volition. It seems to be categorically different from all other phenomena 
and feels the most self. Yes, I suppose it is very categorically different from all other phenomena. If it feels like self, well, a lot of things feel like self, but that's just a feeling. If that feeling arises, you should note the feeling. Volition is something that, to a meditator, appears very much not self. I'm sorry, I'm not suggesting you're not a meditator, but as you practice mindfulness, and you maybe don't realize it, because we often, when we when we hear about these doctrines of self and so on, we often, something like we, we miss the forest for the trees. It's not a, it's not quite accurate, but it's that kind of thing where we miss what's important. It's right in front of us when we're looking for something else. So this idea of self and ego and so on, you miss what's right there in front of you. But volition is certainly not self. You can you can see you'll be meditating quite peacefully and then suddenly hey I want to do this I want to do that and it's like boy I wish that wasn't there <laughs> craving for this craving for that same with annoyance you don't realize it but when you're annoyed about something you didn't intentionally get annoyed and boy you'd be better off if you didn't get annoyed right but it feels like self and that's the problem Because when it feels like self, you think it's self, and when it's self, then it feels hopeless because I'm the one doing it, you know. You feel bad, you feel like you're a bad person because of your volitions. When in when in fact it's more like, boy, I'm a s I'm 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 a prisoner to this tyrant of volition. We're more like prisoners than we are like masters. Speaking of tyranny, how does one cope with living under authoritarian governments and tyranny? By going inward, I suppose. You know, it's certainly not the ideal situation for a meditator, but it's not hopeless by any means. If you have access still to meditation teachings, it's a good example of why meditation practitioners, teachers, should steer clear of politics. Because we don't need to change things like tyranny. It'd be great if there wasn't. I mean, it's very bad for tyrants and all of their cronies. And I guess also, by extension, bad for the people who are being lorded over. potentially but a person who can be mindful under tyranny can be completely free from it because you don't require much to be mindful it's just a big if as to whether you can be mindful and tyranny sometimes uh, prevents you from finding getting the resources you need to be mindful is a problem but putting that aside, 
Don't be discouraged because mindfulness is still possible no matter what. If you think about it, the tyranny of a government or or an authoritarian is is still less than the tyranny of the body, the tyranny of sickness, tyranny of old age, the tyranny of death. So there are many types of tyrannies that we have to deal with. The mindfulness allows us to experience those things as best possible to the point where they don't affect us, where they don't prevent us from seeing clearly. They don't prevent us from being at peace. How to meditate and be mindful when there is difficulty breathing or shortness of breath? What about being mindful during extreme circumstances such as drowning or suffocation? It's a little bit speculative. Mike, I'm not sure why that's the most important thing to know about extreme circumstances, but but the end. I mean, it's not. It's not that there's not an answer. The answer is quite simple, that it, it doesn't change. Difficulty breathing is just an, a description of it. The reality is there are experiences of tension in the body and, of course, experiences of fear and worry in the mind. Shortness of breath, well, shortness of breath is no different from longness of breath. It's still just experiences. You should note it as feeling, feeling. And if someone were suffocating or drowning, ultimately, ultimately, it's the same thing. It's still just experience. An enlightened being would just see it as experience. That's what we're aiming for. Hopefully before we end, actually end up drowning, we're, we've trained ourselves so that the drowning is mindful. quite get this one it's I, I'm, it's just a problem I think uh, with language but so in meditation the phenomena are clearly seen views and personality are seen as phenomena the heart is balanced still in daily life aversion to what is felt is developing equanimity towards this okay so it's easy to say these things, and this could be your interpretation of how things are, but if there's still aversion, if that's what, if what you're saying is that there's still aversion in daily life, then maybe your meditation needs a little bit of tweaking, and you certainly need to apply the meditation in daily life as well. So I, I can't tell without knowing what sort of meditation you're doing, or whether, um, you know, how valid your, your descriptions are. But again... 
we never develop equanimity towards things. That's the wrong perspective from my from my point of view. We develop mindfulness towards things, trying to see things clearly as they are. The equanimity comes along with that. But if you try to develop equanimity, it very easily becomes this sort of uh, forced calm where you try to somehow overwhelm and overpower the disliking, the aversion and the, the craving. And that's not correct. You should try and overpower it with mindfulness. When you like or dislike, you should say liking, liking. Not trying to stop the liking or disliking, but trying to see it clearly. And that's more powerful. The Buddha said enlightenment is the end of suffering. That's correct. Is suffering simply a distorted, distorted perception which creates a corrupt feedback and therefore self-perpetuates? Is meditation simply a correction? Suffering is not simply a distorted perception. There are two ways you can understand suffering. One, something is suffering in the sense that any time you engage in it, like cling to it, it will cause you suffering. And all things are that way. All things, all arisen things. Anything you could cling to is going to cause you suffering. But the other way of looking at suffering is the actual clinging. And that's this uh, distorted perception. So our distorted perception causes us to suffer based on things that are suffering. If that's not too confusing. So on the one, in in one sense, yes, suffering is simply simply distorted perception. But in another sense, no, it's the it's the result of the distorted perception, really. But it's our it's the experience of things. Suffering is is the reality of <coughs> of an experience that arises like pain or the most glaring ones are things like pain or um, sadness I guess so I wouldn't try to simplify it exactly like that I don't think there's any need to the Buddha put it in very simple words we shouldn't really try to rephrase what the Buddha said unless we're absolutely sure that it's just a language thing. The Buddha said there is suffering, there is the cause of suffering, the cessation of suffering and the path that leads to the cessation of suffering. That's the Buddha's teaching. So if you want Buddhism, take the Four Noble Truths and don't try and change them. Can a person who isn't a monk attain to arahatship? Are there examples in the suttas of this? Yes, yes, there are many examples. One very famous one that comes to mind is Bahia. Bahia was uh, not a monk, and he became an arahant, and then he was killed by a bull, apparently, before he could ordain. So there's something about not being a... If you're not a monk, you can't survive as an arahant. I guess basically because you just wouldn't try. But there's also a sense that it's there's something deeper than that, like that the weight of being an arahant just 
can't be supported by lay life. So you just die, or you pass into parinibbana. What is Dhamma I? Oh, I think I'm almost done here. There's lots more questions. But uh, I'm going slow. I slowed down, but you guys, you guys are great. It's great. I really appreciate that. Not because of how it, what it does for me, but I, I appreciate very much your uh, interest in the Dhamma. These are really good questions. So far tonight, I think slow mode helped, helps to regulate us. This is this is going to be the last question, though. The rest of these questions that you have, I apologize. I'm trying to stick to one hour. And um, just ask them again next time. So, Or go looking for answers in my other videos. Or go looking for answers within. Because that's where the truth is. So the Dhamma I. The Dhamma I is a metaphor i guess a figurative speech a figure of speech it refers to the experience of enlightenment when one sees that whatever arises ceases because one experiences complete and profound cessation And with that cessation comes the understanding. Having having experienced cessation, there arises the Dhamma I, which means the perspective that Yang Kinti Samudaya Dhammang Sabantang Niroda Dhammang. Whatever is of a nature to arise, all of that is of a nature to cease. And it sounds kind of obvious if you read it or hear it. But that belies the profundity of it. It's not It's not trying to impress you with the words. It's trying to describe the experience in words which are ultimately inadequate. The words don't, are, the words aren't the experience. The Dhamma I is a perspective on things. Our ordinary perspective, even though we might intellectually think to ourselves, yeah, everything that arises ceases, that's not our perspective. We cling to things as though they're going to last forever. Right? Even though we know intellectually they're not. No. When someone has the perspective that everything that arises ceases, changes everything about their interaction with reality. All right. So that's the... That's the Dhamma for tonight. Thank you all for coming out. Appreciate you all. I wish you all peace, happiness, and freedom from suffering. <laughs>